The Good Eater by Jane Han. Yes, because nobody had ever asked her before, and it occurred to her that she may not be asked again. She did not ponder the question. She merely said yes and thought no more about it. No more about the decision, that is, about the prospect of being married. She thought a great deal. Her affirmative answer resulted from the fact that she could see Tom adored her. Until then, when it came to her with men, she'd done all the adoring. She'd often wondered what it would be like to be unconditionally adored by someone. Adoration was not quite the same as love, she concluded. The longing to be someone's wife had never preoccupied Catherine's thoughts, as it had at least some of her friends at school and university, and it often seemed to dominate the conversations of the younger women in her office. Of course, Catherine never actually participated in these conversations, nor was she invited to. It was probably assumed that she would never marry. This wasn't because she was deemed unattractive, but because, even in these enlightened times, people tend to surmise that a woman who hasn't been snapped up by her early thirties will be hard-pressed to find another snapper-upper. The truth was that Catherine had never quite been able to imagine sharing her life with anyone. But now the word wife, which always seemed a clod of a word, prosaic and commonplace, took on an almost sacred meaning. She played with the words Tom's wife in her head. Sometimes she simply said them out loud, in the park, in the bath, and alone in bed at night or in the morning. About Tom she had plenty of doubts, but about her decision to marry him she had none. Tom was not strictly her cup of tea as her mother put it. He was hardly the companero she had conjured up on winter afternoons when she'd allowed herself to imagine it would be nice not to be unattached. Tom was a gentle tower of a man with a slow smile and long, beautiful hands. He had an inordinate capacity for looking on the bright side, and when Catherine first experienced this sunny nature, she felt relief. At last she could sink into her natural, pessimistic state, here was somebody who would go to any lengths to lift her out of the mire. She'd always wanted to behave badly, to be the bad girl she really was, and to be accepted as such by an adorer. That was one of her two reasons for answering so prompt a yes. The other was that Tom was a chef. Which brings us to Tom's reason for choosing to pursue Catherine with such unequivocal determination. The women Tom had been in relationships with until now fell into two categories as regards their food. They were either picky or inattentive. Not only did Catherine have a healthy appetite, she had a respect for food. He was able to make this observation at their first meeting, which was at a dinner party in Kentish Town. 
Tom had a distaste for people whose only interest in such occasions was to eat the food as quickly as possible and get on with the tedious conversations they were bound to have. They were users of food. Dinner parties were merely excuses to get together to drink as much wine as possible and bitch about absent friends or discuss one's career interminably. This occasion looked as if it was going to be the same. Then he spotted Catherine. Tom hadn't been properly introduced on his late arrival. He came in hot-cheeked after an arduous cycle ride from South London. He was presented to the dinner guests en masse. Everybody, this is Thomas, Jack's brother. Thomas, this is everybody. Everybody laughed and said hello, glad at last that the meal could be started. Tom didn't really know why he'd been invited. He had little in common with his brother's friends. He found them excruciating, all of them, except that girl sitting at the far end of the table. He watched her as she helped herself to a sizeable portion of quite the best fish stew he'd tasted outside France, apart from his own, of course. He was struck by the way she tackled her generous bowlful, undaunted and without inhibition. He could see she only had half an ear on the conversation. There was an unfocused smile on her lips, but he suspected it had more to do with the magnificent boulebets than what was going on around her. Apart from complimenting the host on the food, Tom said little that evening. However, he concluded later that night, as he got ready for bed, that the dinner had not been a waste of time. He'd found Catherine. He knew her name because the helpful person on his left had given him a rundown on all the guests. Catherine, Irish, worked for a publisher. Bit of a strange creature, still lives with a mother. Tom, lounging on his sofa and looking at the peeling plaster above his head, tried to assemble a picture of Catherine, but it was no use. With a kind of mounting panic, he realised he couldn't remember any of her physical details. He didn't know if she was dark or fair, tall or short, beautiful or not. How could he have not noticed? There was just a memory of her presence, something warm, vague and intriguing. The next morning at seven, he rang his brother's wife. What's Catherine's number, he asked. After an unceremonious, Amanda, she supplied the number and rang off. Tom rang Catherine immediately without giving himself time to think. Unlike Amanda, Catherine was wide awake. Hello? Hello, this is Tom. We met last night. Well, in fact, we didn't really meet. I watched you eating dinner. Did you? Catherine seemed unabashed by this intrusion at ten past seven in the morning. I'm afraid I don't remember you. Oh, doesn't matter, he said, almost impatiently. I just want to cook dinner for you, that's all. How kind. Why me, though? You're a good eater. Catherine laughed out loud and almost dropped the phone. Tom laughed, too. The line went quiet, and Tom felt panicky. Well, do you want to eat my food? he managed to say. Yes, that'd be lovely. When? How about tonight? And so it started, a kind of wooing. That evening she was treated to a simple Italian repast, grilled mozzarella with plenty of black pepper, followed by a fish risotto. He couldn't resist more fish. They drank plenty of excellent wine, but Catherine felt they didn't learn much about each other. What she did find out, though, was that Tom really wished to cook for her and then to watch her enjoy the fruits of his labour. He seemed content with that. She tried to draw him into numerous conversations. Books, politics, Italy. 
And although he wasn't abrupt, she soon realised Tom was not a great talker. Catherine lay on her side in her bed and looked at the alarm clock. 2am. Have they really spent five hours together? She concentrated hard but couldn't recall more than five things she'd found out about him. Surely they couldn't have been eating the whole evening. But as she snuggled down under the duvet, she had that inexpressible feeling you have when you know your life is going to change and you're impatient for it. She decided she liked Tom very much. Catherine had not managed to like anyone for quite some time. To tell the truth, she was a bit bored by most of the men she came into contact with. Those she'd known and adored had come and gone. But she wasn't unhappy with her lot, and she certainly wasn't looking. Sometimes she thought that the only person she could fully love was her mother, Molly. Her father had died the year before, and she'd moved back to the family home. Not to look after Molly, because her mother definitely didn't need that, but because it seemed the most natural thing to do. She loved Molly with a fierce, almost sisterly passion, but her mother worried that they'd become too dependent on each other. She'd sometimes scold her, saying it was scandalous that a woman Catherine's age was still living with her mother. But I'm only 35, Catherine would protest, and they'd dissolve into laughter and celebrate their companionship with a large, dry sherry. Molly was delighted to hear about Tom. She wasn't curious about meeting him, preferring to endow him with all sorts of mythical qualities. She wasn't sure whether a chef was quite what she would have chosen. Nevertheless, she loved to hear what Tom had cooked for her daughter and thought his care and dedication a good omen. The proposal came swiftly and directly. Catherine thought that to ask such a question so early on was a truly novel approach. They hadn't even been to bed. Should she be a bit perturbed? She reasoned she'd been to bed with plenty of men she hadn't married, so why not the other way around? A kind of courtship proceeded. Catherine had taken to going round to Tom's flat two hours before the meal was ready. She'd sit on one of the worktops, hugging her knees, watching his fine hands kneading and rolling, topping and tailing, squeezing and sprinkling. She came to equate food with sex and decided that Tom's culinary expertise was somehow connected to his abilities in the bedroom. So far, she hadn't put the theory to the test. Proof of the pudding, she muttered as she let herself into the house after a mouth-watering feast of Lebanese dishes. Molly had already gone to bed, but there was a message. Robert had called the house phone as he didn't have her mobile number. In London for a conference. We'll be in touch tomorrow. There was a pudding she'd sampled many times. Catherine blushed at her own thoughts, but a wide smile spread across her face. Then she noticed her mother's exclamation marks. Molly had never been a fan. Upstairs in bed, she castigated herself for responding to the idea of seeing Robert again so readily, but she found it difficult to put those thoughts away. It wouldn't be being unfaithful, would it? Robert was simply part of her past. Anyway, how could you be unfaithful to someone you'd never slept with? She was 35, for God's sake. She had certain needs. Oh, God. She pulled the covers over her head. In the morning, Robert rang her office and they arranged to meet at his hotel. They could grab a bite, have a few drinks. It would be fun. That's what Robert said. Tom was working the next few evenings, so there was no need for excuses. The thoughts of Robert in her head. Tom was already remote. That helped. Catherine felt dangerously elated as she headed in the direction of the hotel. She'd first met Robert ten years before at a book fair. 
He was an aspiring author hunting for a publisher and she was new to the business. In many ways, he lived up to her image of the educated American, an intellectual with street credibility. He was already waiting in the bar when she arrived. A few more lines round his eyes made him even more appealing. But as the evening wore on, she remembered that Robert had all the other baggage that comes with being irresistible. The food was bland and Catherine found herself thinking about what she'd be eating if she were with Tom. I'm getting married, she heard herself say, breaking into his monologue about some lecture tour he was going to do. Really? Robert, visibly irritated by the interruption, couldn't hide his lack of interest in the lucky guy. Catherine knew that she'd somehow broken the rules, not by getting married, he didn't care about that, but by mentioning it at all, particularly when Robert was in full flow. On the way home, Catherine looked at the reflection of her own face and thought about Tom. She knew how close she'd come to betraying him, and she knew suddenly that she loved him. She wanted to see him, to be sitting in his bare flat, trying out some new dish he'd concocted just for her. When she got home, she took out her diary. There it all was, every meal he'd cooked for her. She'd written out all the menus and an ironic little critique under each one. She knew this ritual would be thought strange by some, but how much more meaningful it was than listening to Robert boasting of his endless accomplishments and then falling into bed with him, and that feeling of slight regret in the morning. The next day, Catherine decided to make something for Tom. A cake. He never made them himself. She wanted to do something for him, to make up for her infidelity, or at least the intention of it. She stopped off at the supermarket and bought the ingredients for a poppy seed cake. She was due at Tom's later for shabu-shabu and sake. He was experimenting with Japanese food. But making the cake wasn't as easy as she'd hoped. She soaked the poppy seeds for the required time, greased the cake tin admirably, and measured the ingredients exactly. But now, as she looked through the glass door into the oven, she saw the cake rising into a dramatic peak, the mixture underneath bursting through the smooth-seeded surface. It looked horrible, spewing out all over the place. Couldn't she even get a simple cake right? On the tube, she felt desolate, the cake still warm in a Tesco's bag on her lap. As soon as she got inside the flat, she pulled it out and presented it to Tom. I've made you a cake. She was close to tears. I mean, I, I tried to make you a cake. I'm sorry, it's such a flop. Tom didn't laugh at her cake. He didn't even smile. He put his arms round her gently and said, You don't have to do that. It's enough that you're here. I cook. His voice was weak. He tried again. It's the way I communicate. Catherine laughed. God, if you cook something for me every time you want to communicate, I'll be quite a size by the time I'm 40. And she stopped and thought about the shabu-shabu. She thought about all the meals Tom would make, stretching out before them. What a life it would be. Oh, what the hell, she said. I can always exercise. After dinner, Catherine rang Molly to tell her to lock up as she wouldn't be home that night. Just before she rang off, she thought she heard her mother heave an enormous sigh of relief. The Good Eater by Jane Han was read by Rebecca Charles. Studio production, Mark Lingwood. 
and was brought to you by Tempest Productions. And now a word from our sponsor, which is us, Tempest Productions. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it and you'd like to help us make more, then why not buy us a coffee via Kofi? That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tempest Productions. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tempest Productions. Thank you so much for your support.